Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we kick off Financial Literacy Month by welcoming certified financial planner, newly retired Sean Gates to the show. He's going to share his story. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, typically joined by my friend and co-host Dan Maseka, but Dan is not feeling great today. We wish him a speedy recovery. That being said, we do have a guest on our show. We are welcoming certified financial planner and now retired financial planner, Sean Gates, to the program. Sean, thank you so much for joining me. It's good to be back in the same space as you, even if it's virtual. Even if it's virtual. Yeah, we we spent a lot of time on these screens looking at each other going, what are you talking about? So uh, it's good to have that experience again today. Yeah, I miss overhearing all the conversations, that's for sure. To be fair, working from home, that's what I miss too. You know, I, I still get to do work that I find really meaningful, but uh, hearing kind of that banter and like just what goes on between uh, the client calls, that was some of the, the, the most fun stuff from, from our days working together. Yeah, it was a blast. So you're joining us today because uh, in my mind, at least personally, you're a, a beacon for the FIRE movement, the Financial Independence Retire Early movement, because you just retired. And, and you're going through the process of making that transition right now. And uh, as, a, as a pretty young person, how old are you right now? Are you 36? 36. 36. Newly retired, young child at home. There's a lot to unpack here. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to getting into this with you, hearing your story. Um, and and uh, I hope our, our listeners and our audience uh, enjoys hearing a little bit of what, what you've gone through as well. Uh, can we start at the beginning? Because... I, to do what you've done has taken, in my mind, several years and many years really of commitment and effort and deliberate process. Where did the inspiration come from originally for you? What made you decide early retirement or early financial independence was such a critical thing for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing was watching, you know, just in our everyday conversations, but particularly watching my father in a nine to five and raised three kids. He was a divorcee. Just your time never being your own. I hate it. <laughs> I just, I can't stand it. Uh, I have never been able to, to handle it as well as I would like. And so I just wanted to be able to say when I wake up in the morning, I can do whatever I want with my time. And so that particularly the financial independence part of fire was the key. Um, I still think I'll have my hands in many different pots as we go forward, but but I, I think that's important. So so there was a deep rooted family connection that you had where where you you observed your dad and said he, that doesn't look like he's having fun. I want something different 100%. for myself. Yeah. What age was that that you were sort of making that realization? Was that still while you were living at home as a as a teenager? Was so that's that's pre college that you were starting to kind of make some of those observations. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the high school, you know, your formative years when you're started to develop as a person. 
And were you into personal finance at that point? Like, did you had you even begun to understand the mechanics of what would create that independence? For Not yourself? at all. No. So, I <laughs> I kind of stumbled into personal finance. I actually started to go to college. I mean, I I didn't know what I wanted to do when I started college. I just knew that's what I was supposed to do. That's what my dad had impressed upon me to be successful, you know, as a human. But when I went into college, I went in starting as an architecture major, didn't love it, started to see some of the same kind of behaviors in myself that I saw, you know, in other people, and just drudgery. And so I made the switch to personal finance, not so much out of passion, although it has become a passion, but more just, I know I'm going to need to figure out personal finance so I can get to where I want to be. I might as well make a career out of it. And so then that's when I made the switch. Okay, so the journey takes you into the personal finance realm. You and I had some some fairly similar parallels in terms of our career path. I think we both started yep. at Ameriprise. Uh, that, that's where I, I came out of school and, and, and went to Ameriprise. And you were working with an independent advisor uh, in, in that channel, correct? Yeah. So, yeah, we had, I think we had very similar paths. I When I was in college, after I had made the switch to personal finance and uh, the CFP accredited program, my professor at the time was an Ameriprise advisor and he knew a few other Ameriprise advisors and he was kind enough and a big part of this whole fire, primarily financial independence thing that we'll touch on is just luck, pure dint of luck. I've been very lucky individual in my life, but was lucky enough that this uh, professor hooked me up with a struggling Ameriprise advisor for an internship. And so I got my foot in the door, but he was struggling. And he basically, when I walked into his office, handed me a list of names and was like, go call these names. I had no idea what I was doing, didn't know much about personal finance yet because I was still early in my career, collegiate career. And so, yeah, just started started hard in the financial advisory space. But so you did, did you did the CFP curriculum, the educational part while you were still in college? Yeah, it was actually one of the first accredited programs at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Well, that you you definitely came out with a leg up and and you know, what I find interesting and I I've at least observed in this uh this world that we're in is that as financial planning has gotten more recognized, more attention, has gotten more school accredited programs that are teaching financial planning as a skill set, they're not necessarily teaching what you just mentioned, which is you're going to get a list of names at some point, you're going to have to call them. And now you're effectively a salesperson, even though that's not any part of the CFP program is being a salesperson. So you were you were thrown into that. And, and I think that is a Part of the experience that is sometimes very shocking and also uh, concerning for for people that have enjoyed the technical practice of financial planning, but maybe haven't seen what goes on in these businesses, which are businesses they need to attract and acquire clients, then serve them well through the highly qualified advice. But that piece of it, I think it's lost in how those programs teach. Yeah, and I, I I don't know. It's been so long since I've been in that world. I think that the, those programs are trying to do a better job of addressing what you're touching on now because they saw so many people just wash out after that portion of it hit them in the face. But yes, I mean, it's a very big part of the business. Sales as a business owner is just huge, right? It's, it's your livelihood. It's how you live and die. So you have to kind of account for it. Okay, so now you're working with an advisor 
doing doing some actual work in this internship, had the fire movement or that bug hit you at that point? Yeah, I mean, so it I I was set that I wanted to find a career that would pay me well enough in my career that I could end that career. I mean, I had it in my mind from really that those high school days, I am going to try and become financially independent by 40. And that's just, that's been the age that I had been targeting since that time. And again, luckily because of this professor, I knew how much my professor made and it, it was a, a decent amount of money. And so I was like, yeah, I mean, I can, I can do this for you know 10 years. I mean, what were you doing is taxes? How, how did you know? Did he share what he was making? Cause that that's, that's unique. Yeah, he sh- well, so I <laughs> he's probably going to find me one day. <laughs> I don't know if he keeps up with me, but it was actually his business partner, who I don't think they ended on good terms, but his business partner showed me his income. And so, yeah, and it, it was just, it was very large. Uh, and so I, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make it work. And so, yeah, I was, I was fully set to retire by 40 and go on this path for 10 years, 15 years, whatever it took. Now, so were you saving because was that a paid internship or was that unpaid work? Uh, that was paid work. You know, I can't remember what I made, but it was like an hourly, you know, whatever it was. Yeah. Got it. Were you saving a high rate of that already in those college years? Because I, I would imagine, you know, dealing with the expense and whatever is going on in college, those are generally pretty low income years. Had you already begun saving aggressively there? Yeah. I mean, you know, the early signs of fire type behavior were already in full effect. I was saving as much of those paychecks as I could. I remember, I mean, and you know this, I'm a, I don't put high marks towards good appearances or looking professional all of the time. And even back then in college, I remember the parting gift when I graduated and ended that internship from those business partners was taking me to men's warehouse to get professional clothes because they were like, dude, you cannot go into your next job looking like you have in this internship. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That's hilarious. But yeah, and that was, you know, just indicative of, you know, I lived with my brother. We both went to the same school for a few years. So we got to share rent. I mean, it was just as much of those things of scrounging around trying to save a buck as you could. Got it. Okay. So, so yeah, the, some, some of the signs of things that we're going to get into here, I think today showing very, very early. So you graduate, you've decided that personal finance is a path you're going to go down, it sounds like. And then did you end up working with those same business partners after you graduated? Yes, actually. So the 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 internship, the advisor that I was with, he failed. So he washed out of the business. And because the professor had been kind enough to introduce me to, to them, when that failed, he took me on in his practice as an intern. So I worked for them. and then. You know, and you and I came up at about the same time. This was when the um, 2008 financial meltdown happened. That was like my last year of working with them before I went out on my own. Well, I shouldn't say on my own, but not in a collegiate kind of atmosphere. I went and worked with a a new independent um, Ameriprise advisor in northern Wisconsin uh, and did that for a few years. Got it. So from the get go, uh, you know, you just mentioned that the housing thing that you were you were splitting some rent with your brother and that you had found a, a more affordable way to do that. This is probably bouncing ahead a little bit, but I'd love for you to share 
kind of your current housing situation? Because of the things that I know that you've done to kind of empower yourself on this journey, that's one of the more creative. And and the housing expense, whether it's buying a home, whether it's that you've bought a lot of home or not enough or, or wherever people are, it's such a big portion of people's budget. And managing that, getting to a place where they're either debt-free or have enough income coming in that they can cover those expenses uh, is really a critical part of the planning process. Can you take us through what you eventually did? Yeah. I mean, and this, again, this just goes to the mindset. Like if people want to escape the drudgery of a nine to five so that they have, they're empowered enough to start their own business or take risks that they otherwise wouldn't or do nothing, you know, if that's your prerogative, it really is more about mindset than anything and the behaviors that you implement. And so one of those behaviors or mindsets was, I am never going to own a home unless that home is partly income producing, full stop. And so the first house that I ever bought, and this is, was in Colorado, was a duplex. And that duplex allowed me to live for free. You know, one half of the duplex was more than covering my mortgage, and the other half was where I was, and there was no cost effectively. And so that was a great setup. Um, and then I left Colorado to finally come work for Motley Fool Wealth Management. And even here, and this, I think this is a testament to that mindset. Northern Virginia is a brutal housing market. You know, it's one of the highest cost of living places that you can be in. And finding a house, especially in Alexandria, that was income producing was very challenging. So I spent the better part of four years just scouring Zillow, looking for a property that could accommodate that uh, setup. And I finally found sort of like a, a very flexible property, like one of those old school townhomes where there's commercial space in the bottom. Uh, you can live above the commercial, like an old school kind of townhouse thing. And so, yeah, uh, we moved in and we, it was three floors and we split it up. So we lived in the middle floor and we rented on Airbnb, the top and the bottom floors. And that produced well more than the mortgage cost of our, of our house. Now, you know, we alluded to this a little bit in the intro, but I have a young child now. So we've taken over the top two floors now. So we shut down one part of the Airbnb, but that bottom Airbnb is still there covering our mortgage. <laughs> That's amazing. And yeah, I, you know, the thing about the fire movement to me, and maybe, maybe this is just a, a, a very obvious observation, but it just feels like a lot of people aren't willing to make the sacrifices that are required. And, and that's what I love so much about your story is that you've been so deliberate and so thoughtful really at every stage of the way. Uh, and, and we're hearing some of those strategies, but there's a lot of people that would go, yeah, I would love to not be beholden to a boss or my nine to five or whatever that is that they're doing uh, for their income. But the idea of, you know, selecting their home and being so deliberate about selecting homes and how they're going to do it and making sure that they're creating that income possibility or at least subsidizing, right? Because there, there's a milder version of what you're doing, which would be maybe you bite off a little bit of a larger home than what you need with the intent of subsidizing. But that means that you're a landlord. That means that you've got people coming and going and they're on your property or in your property at some you know, frequency that that most people... I get the sense don't want. Um, and, and so I, I think that that sacrifice that you've made, and, and I'm using the word sacrifice loosely there, but you've, you've been very, very specific about how you made that plan 
And that's the type of thing that I think is required. And so for everybody listening that's going, well, yeah, that, yeah, of course, that would do it, right? Like if, if you take what you're currently paying for rent or, or for your mortgage and you convert that number into savings, what does that do to your savings rate? And, and that's a, probably a really, really big shift for most of us. Yeah, and I haven't been good. This sounds kind of anathema in the financial planning space, but I haven't been good at tracking my numbers. But it would be interesting as like a retrospective to go back because I literally have never paid. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that. That's too hyperbolic. But there's very few occasions where I've had a cost of living allocated to housing that was not wiped out through another portion of income that I could save. So that's, you know, call it. 13 years of a what you know whatever fifteen thousand twenty thousand dollars per year that instead of going out the door stays in my pocket and can invest and compound and it was it's just it's been a huge driver yeah the other thing that I think um, is interesting is you know the time period that you and I are talking about which is basically the 2008 crisis era and beyond, uh, has been a spectacular bull market run, um, one, one of the largest in history, if not the largest in history. And it has been a good time to be an investor. So for somebody that has been putting dry powder into the market over the last 13, 14 years, that's been, that's been a very, very positive experience. Um, and to your point on luck, you know, we may not all get that same run as we're, as we're putting dry powder into the market. But that's been a good time to have been doing what you've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, every piece of this story, I will fully accredit half of my good fortune to luck. I'm not ashamed to admit it. But yes, I mean, it wasn't so good of a feeling when you and I went through the financial crisis. That was a very tough time to start a business. And I'm sure if you haven't told that story, that would be a good one for this podcast. But that was a very forging period of time. And then we got the blessing of being able to kind of ride the upswing at that bottom. You know, the funny thing about doing this show is uh, obviously we're recording a lot of it and we've put out a lot of content so far, but so many of the stories that I've shared on the podcast are things that I've shared many times personally with people, whether that's just as an anecdote or as a story that I'm telling friends. Uh, and I have a fairly poor memory. Uh, and so I've like forgotten exactly what stories I've told on this show already. Um, at, you know, 60-ish episodes in, people, I'm like, oh, man, did, did we talk about that? So uh, I do believe I have talked about that, certainly, uh, that it was a very, very challenging start. I think that was part of our, you know, advice we would give our younger selves episode, if my memory is at all helping me today. Uh, but but yeah, I've talked about that a little bit. But it was, it was terrible. It, I mean, it really was. And you know, I would have been better off in the first year had I continued working in restaurants. Right? That that's how bad it was financially. Uh, that I would have been better off waiting tables than showing up in a suit every day to an Ameriprise office and calling myself a financial advisor. Um, so that that was a a a tough year for sure. Uh, and you know, the fact that we stayed standing after that, I think, is is enough. Uh, it I, we didn't need to thrive; we just needed to survive in in that period of time. Yeah. And I just, the, the naivete, I look back on my former self at that time, and I just was so dumb that I didn't know how bad it was. And so I could cold call people and be like, hey, what's up? I'm going to talk about this thing. And then people on the other end of the phone would be like, why, why would I even talk to you? And I was just like, 
I don't know. <laughs> and so that naivete was helpful. I mean, realistically, it, armed with today's level of knowledge and talent, and I don't mean forward-looking knowledge on like what the market was going to do. Obviously, if we knew what the market was going to do, you could make a pretty effective pitch. But just armed with with your current skill set, if I set you back up in 2008, 2009 and said, hit the phones, you'd be you'd be incredibly compelling. And I know that because because I, I, I know what your knowledge base now looks like. And, you know, just the, the inexperience there, I think, w- was probably tough. But what an incredible time or opportunity to have been an investor, whether you had been one before or not. Right. If you could be putting dry powder to work in 2009 right now, right, like you would do it full force with as much as you could. Uh, and people didn't understand that, right? They were scared, they were uncomfortable. And, um, you know, we've talked about market volatility so many times on this show, but uh, it would have been a great time really to have been taking your cold call and, and taking some decent advice. Yeah, no, agreed. So let's talk about just other strategies you've used. So the housing was a big one to have limited or eliminated your housing cost almost across the entire spectrum of, of your professional working life is huge. What else strategy-wise have you employed to kind of make this happen for yourself? Yes. I mean, there's so there's some controversial ones insofar as I consciously decided not to have children early on, you know, and you, you could debate how expensive children are. I'm realizing now how much more expensive they are than I thought they were more in lost opportunity costs than the actual direct input costs themselves. But it was a conscious decision to wait to have a child so that we could be, you know, the, the acronym DINKS. Do, so my wife and I, dual income earners, no kids. And, and again, it was while I was young that I could just save, crush so much am- amounts of money into the market and watch it compound and grow. And now that I have that pot of, of gold at the end of the rainbow to kind of rely on, I, can, I feel very confident to take care of my daughter and potentially future children. And, you know, it's a double-edged sword. I'm older now, so it's harder to raise a kid. At the, I don't have the energy that I would have in my 20s. You know, so these are the types of things that you have to think about. But that was a conscious decision to not have children early on. Uh, the other big one was just taking advantage of as many different program, financial programs that were offered through employers. Now, again, we were extremely fortunate at Motley Fool because they just are so employee friendly. But some of the items that they had in place, everyone has access to. Well, most people have access to. And so one of the biggies that I've talked about on other podcasts is the the backdoor after-tax contributions. And so again, that that's just because I had such a high amount of income or, or b- better uh, income that I was not spending, I could just plow those dollars into those programs. And now I have a very nice size Roth to use in retirement. And I'm sure you and Dan have talked about the, the mechanics of the after-tax backdoor kind of process, but anyone can look up that on Google. It's very easy to find. And I mean, I I should say now another, and this is becoming more relevant in like Sean's world today, and I didn't anticipate it, was the the benefit of having experience with real estate. And I know not everyone's experience with real estate is the same, 
But I, I truly believe that real estate, despite all of its potential downfalls, is one of the very best ways to create wealth in this world. And, and it's, it's available to everyone because it's such a large market, so disparate, so bifurcated. Um, just, it's an unsophisticated market. There, there's so many small players in the market and you can find opportunities. And so as an example, that duplex that I had in Colorado, so I was house hacking that and that was awesome to save that money. But then when I moved out to Virginia, I sold that property for, at the time, well over what I had bought it for. So now I had you know a $70,000, $80,000 windfall over the cost that I had paid and I got to invest that. And so, and there's all these ancillary benefits to real estate and it's just, it's compounding itself now, my knowledge of real estate and the types of deals and investments that I'm doing today. So I think that's interesting. So are you buying, uh, and, and I have said this many times pretty publicly on, on our show, because my experience with real estate has been probably the opposite of yours. Uh, for me, real estate has been a pit that I put money into. Uh, and even though I just sold a home for well more than I paid, uh, I also lost money doing it. Um, and and so I, I've had some pretty negative personal experiences. I kind of view it as wealth preservation and and certainly something that is going to grow. I, I think it is an inflation protector. I think borrowing money today at today's rates that is going to effectively depreciate through inflation, right? You're, the, the money you pay your mortgage off with 15 or 30 years from now is worth less than it is today. And you lock that in. So so I, I I'm not negative on many of those aspects. But for me, real estate has not been a strong investment uh, and has been one of the worst investments that I've personally made. The way you've done it has been wildly different, but also through some of those those challenges, right? Uh, I don't know that I'm willing to have somebody live in my property at the moment. That's a trade-off I'm willing to make. And I realize my savings rate won't be as high because of it, but I kind of value that privacy and and the autonomy to not have somebody else in and near my things. Um, so, so again, I, I think I make that decision clearly, but what are you doing now from a real estate investment perspective that you're excited about? Yeah. And I should say, I would probably agree with you. I mean, obviously it depends on the market. I, I've keep tabs on some pretty smart real estate folks on Twitter. And, you know, if you had bought even just a single family residence, like you did here in your particular area, if you had done the same thing in Denver or Florida, just by dint of luck, you could turn around and sell it for you know a million dollars more than you bought it for, just because of the demographic shifts that have occurred. So again, luck is always at play. But I, I would I would largely agree that a primary residence that is purely your living space is a is a either at best neutral, if not slightly negative value creator for most people. And, and I, like I had mentioned, my mindset was always, I'm never going to own a house like that. So my, my properties have always been income producing. And I think that's why our experiences have been different because those income producing properties for a particular set of investors are very attractive. Now, if, if you have the benefit of being able to make some improvements, and I should say that one of the beautiful things about real estate is there are a variety of ways to make improvements to investment-related properties, right? So you could get your hands dirty and improve the physical aspects of it, re remodel the kitchen, remodel the bathroom. And I know you have experience with that as well. <laughs> um, but uh, 
that's just one thing. The other thing is you can just simply create more value than was there originally, right? So in the current house that I'm in, the original lady, she had one tenant in it and the rest of the space was vacant and she just was lazy um, and didn't get the full value out of this property. And I've come in and I've maximized it by dramatically increasing rents. And, and that increase in rents, because commercial property is valued on the income that it produces, has dramatically increased the value. So having kind of laid the foundation there, uh, you know, and this was 2021 was just a transformational year in my life. Obviously, I, I retired officially. Well, I guess I retired in this year, <laughs> January, but I was on the precipice of retiring. I had gone on paternity leave in 2021. And during 2021, I, I was like, I'm going to, before I officially retire and lose my paycheck, I'm going to figure out a way to recreate my paycheck through investment properties. And so I did that. I found a 14 unit multifamily property um, that I was able to purchase at a very attractive price. Market rate rents were significantly higher than what the rent roll showed. Uh, and so it was, it was a great investment. I actually think I might be able to sell that property this year for, again, dramatically more money than what I purchased it for. And it, it's just that type of investment is it's just transformational. We're talking, I was actually just remarking to my wife, I don't know when it happened, but I've gone from a place where I was making this, you know, think of the amount that you save in a 401k, call it between 20 and $30,000 a year if you're just trying to max it out. Those types of decisions are big decisions for almost everyone. But now my financial decisions are half a million dollar decisions. And I'm not saying that to boast. It's just, I actually don't like it. It makes me nervous. I get stressed out about it. I'm like, I, I wish I wasn't having to make these decisions. But at the same time, they are dramatically increasing the value that I'll be able to provide to my family. That's great. Let's talk about one final area. Uh, just some of the unique credit card hacking things. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if I remember correctly, at one point, you had something like six American Express Platinum <laughs> cards or, or some, some ridiculous thing that you had done uh, where I look at the annual fee on a single American Express Platinum and I'm like, pass. Uh, what, what were you doing in that space? What's that allowed you to do? Uh, it sounds like that's probably icing on the cake from some of the core uh, investing decisions you've made, real estate and otherwise. But what what are what are you thinking there? What are you doing now? Can you take us through it? Yes. So I, I would say, and this actually kind of leads into one of the other big things that pe people's mindsets should shift around, right? Because we talked about my, if I could go back in time, I would tell my younger self, hey, the path that you're on is the right path but focus less on scrounging around trying to find every dollar and figure out a way to dramatically increase your income. And I know that sounds a little bit trite, like sure, anyone can just go out and make their income better, but you have to create sort of the, the mindset and the circumstances to, to do that. And entrepreneurship, I think, is one of those things, whether it's in real estate or yourself starting a financial advisory practice. And why this is related to credit card hacking is because, and I didn't know this until within the last year or two, but when you are an entrepreneur, you can get business credit cards, 
Now, you don't have to be an entrepreneur necessarily. Like you could be a sole proprietor. So my very first business credit card was from the Airbnb. So that was officially a business as a sole proprietor and I could get a, a business credit card. And you can get multiple business credit cards if you want. So, so instead of having a limit to just your personal kind of credit score reliant mechanism to get credit cards, you can get business credit cards, but then you can create multiple businesses and each of those businesses can have multiple business cards. And so, and and those businesses have to spend money. And so you're just, at this point, I have over a million points uh, of various um, (laughs) rewards and I use them regularly. We haven't paid for a flight in the last three years and I travel well uh, at this point. And so that's another way that that these types of mentalities help, you know, so I don't have a house payment, I don't have a travel payment in my budget, those categories are gone. Now, it's gotten a lot harder to do this, I should say, there, uh, there was like investing in 2009, golden years of credit card hacking, that a lot more nerdy people in this space could talk about. But, uh, you know, it, it takes some practice. You have to pay attention to all the annual fees. You have to pay attention to the spending thresholds. You have to drop credit cards at certain times. So it's not free. And like you mentioned about rentals, right? You're, you're not comfortable with either the, the, the privacy concerns or the work that what rentals would require at this moment in your life. A lot of people are not, are not game to do the credit card hacking because it requires such a high attention to detail. But Having had the time to do that and make that a focus has allowed me to have no travel budget for many, many years. Yeah, that's another powerful, powerful tool, I think. I, I do like what you said, that it's um, more so about the big decisions than maybe the small ones, right? That's kind of that's kind of what I think you're saying with with less time on, on some of the scrounging details. Uh, and, and there's so many ridiculous articles that seem to come out every year telling millennials that if they only skipped their avocado toast or or made coffee at home that their lives would be different and while yeah there's some element of frugality where not spending frivolously is going to be helpful to to your budget i'm i'm one for being happy as well right like if if that coffee is what's making you happy get your coffee and then figure out how to grow your top line in a way that is going to support the lifestyle and the spending rate. Um, and, and so you can do it really from either end. You can grow income or you can cut expenses. Personally, I have tried to grow income as well. Um, that is, uh, now I, I tend to do it in more active ways with my side hustle. I, I was willing to give up weekends and, and things that I watched peers not willing to do. If you need to own every Saturday, what I've done with like the DJ business is not for you. Uh, because I, it's taken a lot of time and a lot of effort over the years. Uh, and now it is a completely paid for business that has some assets. It's income producing, it's flexible, and and it does everything that that I could hope it would do because um, I've grown a skill set around it, a network and everything else. So um, yeah, I, I, I think you and I have approached it, uh, and this has been true in all of our years working together. Uh, we have approached it very, very differently from a different angle and and landed in the same place in terms of what's really important. So uh, that is that is a theme that you and I have shared many times together. Yeah, I miss it. Uh, I was always a fan and mutual respect kind of carries on to this day. I wish I had a way to tap into it every now and again. Uh, the other quick plug I'll make. Um, so I would say I've, I've said this before, but one of the greatest financial resources that I can think of, and it's going to sound a little bit corny, is Twitter. And depending on how you curate your Twitter feed, 
there is this concept that I have just recently stumbled upon called entrepreneurship through acquisition or ETA. And it's not talked about as much lately or as in many uh, popular avenues or outlets. And the basic concept is there was this generation, their large generation of baby boomers, many of whom started their own businesses and ha- are now retiring from those businesses. And their outlet for those businesses is to sell them. And there are so many, and our generation is so ill-equipped to run those businesses because we were told you need to go to college, get a skill set, and get a corporate job that there aren't there's not nearly enough buyers for these businesses. And so if you see entrepreneurship as I do as as a way to get out of the drudgery of a nine to five, there is a very clear path to picking a business. And you could use biz by sell or BizQuest or whatever. And and I'm not saying this would be easy. This this would be buying a job, but if you get good at that job, just like if you get good at your financial advisory practice, you can start to outsource some of the responsibilities. You can start spending less time because you get more efficient. You, there's a pathway to getting to a point where you can spend a few hours a week on a business that produces a very healthy amount of income. And you can buy into these businesses with an SBA loan for very little down. Now, again, there's a whole caveat of things that you need to be aware of before you go down that path. But I just, I don't think it's talked about nearly enough. And it is a pathway to achieving financial independence if you're willing to put in the work. Yeah, I mean, and and we talked about the with the crooked crab guys, and and obviously Dan, who is one of those guys. Um, you know, some of the risks that they took because with SBA, typically your home is is collateral. So for homeowners, you know, th- there's a lot to consider there. Um, but that's interesting stuff, and and uh, maybe something that that you and I should revisit on on the program again. For now, let, let's let's leave it there with really just a huge congratulations to you. Uh, you've been creative. You've been disciplined. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to to have worked with you and and now get to watch you transition into this this next journey and appreciate you sharing that with our listeners as well. Thanks for having me. For folks out there that have questions for us and the show, check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for us. We appreciate you tuning in. We hope to see you all next week. Mm-hmm.